Welcome to the Mount Carmel Christian Church Podcast. In our sermon series, Follow Me, we will be looking at what it means to be a disciple. Today's speaker is teaching minister Tim Peace. Doing good? Good? Awesome. Well, I'm, doing, I'm doing all right. I, uh, I, have to, I have to tell you, I got to go on vacation a couple weeks ago, and um, my wife and I went to Destin, Florida. And uh, it was, so this is the cool part. Well, cool for us. You know, sometimes, you know, your fortune is others' misfortune, which kind of stinks for them. But we got there, and the first night we were there, it was cloudy and rainy and windy and kind of cold and just not really very beach-friendly. But literally the Monday through the Friday that we were there, it was perfect weather, like mid to high 80s, sunny, blue skies, the sand was like sugary white, and uh, the, only, the only downside is I'm a little bit of a water bug, and the waves were so powerful that they had the red warning flag up the entire time. So like if you went like anywhere from where I'm standing to about halfway into our area of seating here, uh, the lifeguard that was driving around on the four-wheeler would get off, and they'd whistle at you, and they'd say, get back here. And I'm not adventurous enough to have gotten in trouble, but several people did. Um, but it's still nice to get in the water. Even if you were ankle high, the waves would come up and they'd hit you. And it was just pretty cool. So needless to say, since we couldn't get in the water a whole lot, it was a great time to literally just spend five to seven hours a day sitting in, in, the, in the heat, uh, catching some rays, digging our toes into the sand, Uh, watching seagulls uh, look to see if you have food. We never did. We're not that dumb. (laughs) And and just taking in the beauty of creation. It was just really, really nice. And I have to confess, you know, we we debated, do we go do stuff, you know, the whole time? I was like, no, I kind of just want to sit around and be a beach bum. So that's what we did. And it was really nice. But, you know, when you do that, it's always good to have reading material, and we didn't bring any books with us because I'm an, I, I, so I have a lot of like physical books, but in terms of leisure reading, I like to use ebooks. Then I just carry this around and it's nice. But the other funny thing about this though is, is I got an email and I will try to stay off my email during vacation, but I had signed up to be able to take this personality test like months ago and it finally came out and I was like, you're on the beach. It's warm, it's, it's great outside, you're sitting and doing nothing. What better time than now to take a personality test? So me being me, that's what I did. It was called the Big Five Aspect Scale. And it's one of the only uh, tests that psychologists actually like, ascribe like, a high level of validity to. And I'm not going to go into a bunch of detail and bore you with all of what's up here uh, right now. But I will tell you something that hit me uh, when I took this. So one of the things that came across in my report, it said, I have a moderately high um, proclivity toward anticipatory anxiety. Now, if you've ever heard me talk before, you know that I've told you that I struggle with worry. You know, Jesus says, don't worry. He talks about taking care of the birds in the air and the flowers in the field. So... If I take care of them, I take care of you, you're more important, don't worry. 
And I hear that, and I say, that's nice, Jesus, but for whatever reason, it's a struggle for me. So this doesn't shock me that this came back this way, but it did get me thinking the last time my wife and I went to the beach and our drive back. And I think that story, while a little bit humorous, I wanted to tell it to you because uh, it sets up a core issue from our passage in the Gospel of John. So anywhere I go, whether I'm with my wife, whether I'm with friends, family, coworkers, anywhere, I tend to always be the driver. I'm always the person, you know, you walk out to go to lunch for the day, you figure out where you want to eat, and it takes 20 minutes to figure out where you're going to go eat. And then finally, you figured it out, you're walking out the doors, and everyone's like, who's going to drive? And I'm like, I will. I've got my keys ready to go. I do it. And in fairness to me, there is a degree of doing that because it, I consider it a small act of service. You know, there's nothing better than just being able to not have to worry about how to get where you're going, not having to listen to Siri tell you the directions, not having to, you know, uh, break at every light down Beachmont Avenue and all that stuff. It's a nice act of service to do. And I wish that were the only reason that I end up being the driver. But there's a much more dubious reason that I end up being the driver everywhere. And that is because I am a horrible, horrible passenger. And I'll tell you why. It's not because I'm one of those backseat drivers. You know, I don't sit there and tell other people how to drive. What I do apparently is I let them know that I think they're driving poorly with my body language. And I'll tell you how I figured this out, okay? I'm in the passenger seat, and one day Brian McGee, our communications director, and I, we went to lunch, and Brian drove that day. Now, Brian is, Brian, we call Brian McGPS because his last name's McGee, and he literally is like a human GPS. It, it's insane. Have him draw a map for you sometime. The attention to detail is fantastic. In fairness to me, he also lived in New York for quite a while, and he drives like it. But, <laughs> but, he is a very good, sound, safe driver. But I was, he, we were riding back to the office, and one day he's, he's driving, and he looks over at me, and he sees my right leg tensing up against the floor. And he looks at me, and he says, he says, Tim, are you trying to break the car? And not like, you know, break it. Like, I'm talking like, you know, brake pedal. Slow it down. And I didn't realize I was doing it. It was just a reflex. Now, this is really okay when you're only driving 15 minutes back. But if you're driving back from Myrtle Beach and you've stopped in North Carolina and then you've got to go through the mountains and the windy roads of Tennessee for hours, this isn't so good. So I said I, dr I drive most places. I also drive most places even on long distances. I, I, I like to drive. I like to control. Now, before I go any further, I need to say something. I'm going to confess this. Don't laugh at me. I'm not the greatest driver in the world. And my wife is significantly a better driver than I am. But I like the control, so normally I, I drive. But she wanted to drive because I, I had driven all the way there and I'd driven halfway back. And so I say, okay, that's fine. We stop for lunch. She's got the keys. We get into that windy road area. And I start doing that thing with my foot again. 
But the problem is, is that we didn't get home in 15 minutes. So the tension in my legs started to rise into my body. And then it rose to my neck. And if, you know, in our culture, we do this a lot. And you ever, you know, your neck gets tired and stressed out. You get sore, you get knots. And then you're so sore you can't hold your neck up anymore. And then you try because you don't want to be looking down while the car's moving. And then it turns into a tension headache. And then you feel like you're going to throw up because the tension headache turns into this nauseating thing I can't even describe. Needless to say, we got to a gas station. And when we got there, I went in and I got some Dramamine. And then it was a really good thing that I wasn't driving on the way back because I was nice and relaxed at that point. So here's why I tell you this story. You know, we all have people that we say we trust. For me, I say I trust my friends, trust my family. Most importantly, I say I trust my wife. But when push comes to shove and certain instances arise, like driving somewhere or having to be a passenger in a car, I have to come face to face with the reality that I say I trust people, but when it comes to driving, at least, the only person I really trust is me. I want the control. We've been in this series called Follow Me, since the beginning of September. And so far, we've, we've, we've come to this point in the series where we've learned about the call to follow Jesus. We've, we've heard the excitement, the adventure, the hopefulness, the reward for following Jesus. And it sounds very, very good. And then we came into this month of October, and then we started to talk about the cost of following. And we've read about people who have come face to face with Jesus and he said, follow me. And they'll say things, well, uh, let, me, uh, let me bury my dad first and then I'll come follow. Let me do this first. Or, or he'll come to a rich young ruler like we talked about last week and he'll say to follow me, but he'll put this incredibly challenging thing before our feet and we cower away and we put up a wall and we say, well, that's too much. We count the cost. And for some people that have counted the cost, that was enough to get them to walk the other direction. And as we go into the month of November, we're going to end up talking about what it means to follow Jesus, so much so and in such a manner that we become worthy, exemplary people to be followed ourselves. Because the Apostle Paul says, do as I do as I do as Christ does. Because that's the goal, to become Christ-like so that others can look to us as an example to be Jesus with skin on for people to follow. So today, we come to this passage in the Gospel of John that becomes like a gauntlet to go through. It's Jesus putting his hearers to the test. It's him getting down and drawing a line in the sand. And so I want you to read this story along with me in John chapter 10. It's verses 22 through 39, and then we'll talk about it. This is what Jesus says. It says, The time came for the festival of dedication in Jerusalem. It was winter. 
And Jesus was in the temple, walking in the covered porch named for Solomon. And the Jewish opposition circled around him and asked, How long will you test our patience? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. And Jesus answered, I have told you, but you don't believe. The works I do in my Father's name testify about me. But you don't believe because you don't belong to my sheep. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never die. And no one will snatch them from my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them from my Father's hand. For I and the Father are one. Again, the Jewish opposition picked up stones in order to stone him. And Jesus responded, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of those works do you stone me? And the Jewish opposition answered, we don't stone you for a good work, but for insulting God. You are a mere human, yet you make yourself out to be God. And Jesus replied, isn't it written in your law that I have said you are gods? Scripture calls those to whom God's word came gods, and scripture can't be abolished. So how can you say that the one whom the Father has made holy and sent into the world insults God because he said, I am God's son? If I don't do the works of my Father, then don't believe me. But if I do them and you don't believe me, believe the works so that you can know and recognize the Father and that he is in me and that I am in the Father. Again, they wanted to arrest him, but he escaped from them. Now, there's a couple things that we should know in terms of background that will help us to understand how this passage actually impacts our lives. The first one is this. The Gospel of John, according to most Bible scholars and those that study this particular gospel, employs a narrative device called irony. Now, you've probably heard the word irony, and maybe you're familiar with the 90s hit by Alanis Morissette, Ironic, right? And in that song, she sings lines like, uh, an old man turned 98, he won the lottery, and then he died the next day. And then she tells these little snippets of these stories in the song, and she closes out every line with, isn't it ironic, don't you think? And to Alanis, I reply, no, no, it's not, because that's not what irony is. Sad, coincidental, bad luck, whatever term we use in our culture, maybe those, but not irony. You see, irony is something very, very precise. Irony is where when you read a story or when you hear a story, you are told at the very beginning of the story something about the main character, Something about the main character's virtues, their being, who they are. You're told up front, and then you go and you read the rest of the story, and you see that the characters in the story that are around the main character operate and respond to him in a manner that makes absolutely no sense if they knew what you knew by reading the beginning of the story. And the best example that we have of irony in our modern culture is Superman. You've all heard of Superman, right? 
Am I going into nerd territory here? Well, you're going to have to sit there for a moment while I go there. Okay, so here's the thing about Superman. What we learn at the beginning of any Superman movie or any time we read up about him is that he is, this, uh, he is from the planet Krypton named Kal-El. And he's sent uh, to escape destruction of the planet by his parents after an uprising. And they send him to Earth. And he lands under the upbringing and caretaking of the Kent family. And he grows up being known as Clark. And nobody knows about Clark's powers. And the funny thing is, he ends up eventually taking a job at the Daily Planet. And for some reason, if he puts on a pair of glasses, it's suddenly nobody can tell that he's Superman without the glasses on. It's amazing, right? And so what we see when people interact with Clark, especially in like the recent movies, is they know none of what we know about him that's been set up at the beginning of the story. And so I wanted to share a clip with you that actually shows what happens to the characters around Clark in this narrative of, of irony. So please play the clip so you can see. Knock it off. Let me go. Hey, leave her alone, man. Or what, tough guy? Or gonna have to ask you to leave. I think I'll probably just leave when I'm good and ready. Oh. <laughs> Oh, there he is. It's not worth it, sweetie. Don't forget your tip. Guy's gonna need some uh, car repair for his semi truck now. See, that's irony playing out. See, if this guy actually knew what we knew about Clark, you think he would have tried to get in a fight with him? Probably not. But he doesn't, and so uh, neither do the people in the story that Jesus is in that we just read. They don't know what we know about him. The other thing is that, that is important to understand is at this time, it says that Jesus has uh, come at the time of the festival of dedication in wintertime. Now, we all know what the festival of dedication is, or at least uh, we know of it, because it's our modern holiday, Hanukkah. And so most of us, we know the word Hanukkah, we know that it happens in the wintertime. We know that there's a menorah and eight candles and eight days of gifts or whatever other thing we hear about. But most of us probably haven't sat back and thought about the story about why Hanukkah became a holiday for the Jewish people. But it's actually important to this passage, and it's why John actually points out what time that this passage occurred. You see, 
during the intertestamental period, the time between the Old Testament and the New Testament, there was this guy named Judas Maccabeus. And he led an independence revolt after the temple was taken over by a Syrian king and desecrated. And by desecrated, that meant that uh, idols and modes of worship that would have been big no-nos to the Jewish people were put in and around the temple area. And not only that, the Jewish people at the time were led astray. They were led into forms of worship that they shouldn't have been led into. And they needed to turn back to God. And they needed to rededicate their place of worship back to God. And so Judas leads this revolt and he's victorious. And so he brings the people together in this victory. And they declare together as a community, God, we will never ever turn away from you again. We will never allow your temple to be desecrated again. We will worship you in all the right ways forever and ever. And Judas, at this time, according to Josephus, the historian, he actually institutes this festival that lasts for eight days. And he decides that the people will do this annually. And see, knowing those two pieces of information, you can understand where the irony is setting in here, right? Because when you go to the first chapter of the Gospel of John, this is what you read. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word was with God in the beginning, and everything came into being through the Word, and without the Word, nothing came into being. He was the light of the world, this passage says. He was a light that shines in the darkness. In him was life. He is the Word, and the Word was made into flesh. You see, from the very beginning of the Gospel of John, we know that Jesus is God in the flesh. He is the Son. He is the Messiah. He is to be revered and worshipped by people that claim to worship God. And at this time, during this festival of dedication, where these people gather together in the temple courts, and they say, God, we will worship you forever, and we will never turn away from you ever again, they have God in the flesh right in the middle of them, and instead of bowing down and worshiping him, they pick up stones to kill him. Do you see the irony? It's like this guy trying to push Superman around. Now, you know, we read this passage today and we think, well, I have the Gospel of John. I've made a decision. I've been baptized. I know who Jesus is. I celebrated at all of our Christian holidays. We go to church together. I'm good. I'm comfortable. But here's the thing. He probably shouldn't be. <laughs> because see, here's the money verse in this chapter. Jesus says, my sheep, listen to my voice. I know them. And they, what? They follow me. They follow me. See, in this whole series, we've, we've, we've listened to Jesus' call. And we, we love the idea that we trust Jesus with all that we are. We love that idea. And we love the security that comes with following Jesus. We love the idea of heaven. We love the escape of hell and death. 
We love all of that. But I think that most of us, myself included, have to wrestle with a different idea. And it's this. We claim to trust Jesus, but instead, often, we trust ourselves instead. We claim to trust Jesus, but oftentimes, we only trust ourselves with our lives. See, in this whole series, when we've talked about follow me, when Jesus makes the call to follow, when he counts the cost and he tells people about the cost, he says, I want you all in. I don't want part of you. I don't want you part-time. I want all of you all in all the time with everything that you have, with all of your being. And if we're honest, that is a tall, tall order. Everybody wants to go to heaven, right? But nobody wants to deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow Jesus all the way to death. If anybody in this room really wants to die that badly, I doubt it. (laughs) But here's the thing. A follower of Jesus trusts Jesus, and in turn, he entrusts us with his mission. It comes back to the hope. So we've counted the cost, but when we count the cost, and as much as this is a line in the sand moment for Jesus, don't forget the excitement, the hope, the relationship that you get to have with the God who created everything. That's what Jesus calls us to. So while, yes, we think about it, and the idea of suffering, the idea of death to follow Jesus doesn't sound appetizing, right? But the hope, the grace, the relationship with God, well, doesn't that make it worth it? According to Jesus, his sheep count the cost and they follow all in. You know, that's the funny thing. Sheep get a bad rap in our culture. Actually, it's funny. I, was, I decided to look up sheep definition. It didn't just come up with a picture of a sheep. Um, I I Googled it while I was in the back. This is no joke. And so the first definition said, uh, you know, that it's, you know, an animal. (laughs) The the second definition, though, was interesting because it's one that we've all grown accustomed to believing. It says that a sheep is a person that blindly follows a leader. See, sheep have gotten a bad rep, even apparently in the dictionary, it's, it's the kind of person that follows blindly, that doesn't critique, doesn't consider whether the person they're following is worthy of following. But Jesus has a different definition for sheep, apparently, because he seems to have a high view, because he says again, my sheep listen to my voice. I know them, and they follow me. So what is a sheep then, according to Jesus? Well, according to Jesus, first of all, sheep listen to the voice of the good shepherd. Jesus is the good shepherd. He actually says it just a few verses before our passage today. Sheep listen to the voice of the good shepherd. What does that mean to listen to the voice? Well, it means not only the literal listening of the the shepherd's voice, but it also means discernment. It means that sheep know the voice of the shepherd so well that he won't be sidetracked. 
She won't be derailed. She won't be led astray. They listen to the voice of the good shepherd. What does it mean for us today to listen to the voice? It means reading this. And I know we all hear we should read our Bibles more. And we all get the app and we sign up for the plan and it pops up every day telling you you should read. And you feel obligated. If you're friends with people that read, you might feel like you gotta do it so that you can look good to your friends. Maybe the minister's told you enough times to read your Bible so you feel guilty. You feel like you ought to do it. It's one of those, shame on you, you better be reading your Bible. Here's the thing, sheep don't uh, listen to the voice of the good shepherd because they have to or they ought to or they should. They do it because they love the voice of the good shepherd. They want to hear his voice. They want to know what he has to say. So, be a sheep. Here's the second thing. It says that the good shepherd says that sheep know, or the shepherd know his sheep. He knows the sheep. That means that this is not a one-way relationship. This isn't a you do as I say, and that's it. It means that the return on investment is that you have a good shepherd that cares for you. When you're hungry as a sheep, the shepherd makes sure you're fed. When you are lost, the good shepherd will leave behind the sheep that are still present to go find you. It means that if danger comes, that the shepherd defends and thwarts the threat of the danger. The good shepherd knows his sheep. Be a sheep. And the final thing that Jesus says about sheep here is he says, they follow me. And, you know, we've been talking about what it means to follow Jesus this whole series, but, you know, I think it's funny that he didn't stop it. He, they listened to me. Sometimes we do that. So if we're really, really good spiritual Christians, we get together in our small groups and we get together in our Bible studies and maybe if we're not a part of those, we at least have an individual uh, devotion that we do in the morning. And we read scripture and we pray. And then we walk away and we say, man, that was a darn good devotional today. That was a great time of fellowship. Yeah, Jesus doesn't stop with listening. His sheep follow. They listen for the point of following. When the good shepherd goes forward, they go forward. When he goes left, they go left. When he goes right, they go right. When he stops, they stop. He is good. He is the good shepherd. He is worth listening to and he's worth following. And they wouldn't want to follow anyone else. So be a sheep. So I want to end with a question this morning. Let's suppose that you're in a narrative story about now, about wherever you're at in life right now. And let's say somebody's reading the story about you. And you're the character, maybe not the main character, but you're a character in the story and they've come across you in the story. And they know who the good guy is and they know who the bad guys are. They know right versus wrong 
They know what leads to life and what leads to death. And they're reading. My question to you and my question for me this morning is, how are you going to fare in the story? How will you fare in the story if somebody's reading about your life? I'll tell you what, when I was driving back, or I'm sorry, when I was riding back from Myrtle Beach, do you want to know how I would have fared in the story? I'd have been the guy that says, I trust my wife, and then sat there trying to break the car to get it to slow down. I would have been deemed a fraud in my trust. If I had been one of the religious people hovering around Jesus as he's in the temple during this time of dedication, I would have been one of the ones with worship and praise on my lips and a stone in my hand. You want to know what I want to be? I want to drop the stone and I want to be a sheep. I want to be a sheep. I want to be a sheep because the good shepherd knows his sheep. Sheep listen and sheep follow because he's good. A follower trusts Jesus and in turn, he entrusts us with his mission. And it's a mission unlike any other we could ever be a part of. So are you following Jesus? Are you really following Jesus? Sometimes we're in it for the benefits, sometimes the community. And don't get me wrong, the benefits, the community, all the things that we're in it for are good. But the best part about it is him. So are you following? And I just want to leave you with this. Be a sheep. Let's pray. God, I thank you for this morning, and I thank you for uh, being so good and so gracious to us. God, I thank you for uh, the simple words that your son gives us that, uh, that we ought to listen, that we ought to follow, and that we know that we're cared for, that we know that we're known. And it's easy for us to say those words and to know what they mean even, uh, but it's a whole different thing to actually live them out day to day. Um, and all the small moments and all the big moments, God. And um, I'm, I'm, I'm glad that you are so good and gracious that you don't wait for us to arrive there, to become perfectly trusting, to become perfectly following, that you come and you call us to follow and then you lay your life down for us so that we can follow, so that we can be made new every day, so that we can get one step closer every day, God. So I pray that as we hear this message, as we understand the line in the sand that you've drawn, that it's not a line that we, we can't walk over and come to you. I pray, God, that for those that are in this room that haven't decided to follow, that haven't made a commitment to follow, I pray that they'll come forward at this time uh, when we pray together and that they will, uh, will commit to being baptized to enter in uh, via death and via resurrection, going under the water and back up so that they can start life anew with you and to begin the journey of following. And I pray, God, that for those of us that have already made that decision, I pray, God, that each and every one of us uh, will be a light, a loving, guiding, gracious light to one another, and that we'll help each other walk uh, in step 
uh, right behind you and do everything as you say and do. We thank you for being so good and so gracious to us. And it's in your son Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening. You can interact with us online at our website, www.mtcarmelchurch.org. Also on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram.